What's up, world? Welcome back to Authentically Us, the podcast where we talk about what it means to be authentic in everything that you do in every space that you po- occupy. Occupy? What the heck is that? Every space that you occupy. I'm Conroy, one of the hosts, and I got Tony here. Tony, say what's up to the people, man. What's going on, y'all? We're ready for another episode, so let's get it. Speaking of episodes, we drop every Tuesday. So find us, like us. Shout out to MSW Media for having us on their platform also give us a like a review share us go to our link tree you can support us we're on all platform streaming social media youtubes all the interwebs also this month we're going to be reading another book what are we bringing for book club this month for book club we're we're reading made for people by justin Wilmer early and this book's all about friendship and how do we fight for our a life of friendship in a world that causes us to be lonely because we're so busy. And this book is amazing. And I'm excited to, to read this book with you, Tony, because Tony and I have been friends for a long time. And if you guys have been following us, you know we're learning about each other every episode. Every day. Um, without further ado, let's jump into this podcast. We got an amazing guest. You guys strap in. It's going to be great. Let's get it. Let's go. What's going on, world? Welcome to another episode of Authentically Us. Today, we got a really uh, special guest. We have Kelly Bruno. Uh, she is an amputee ultra runner, a contestant on season 21 of Survivor, a resin- residency at UNC Anesthesia. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, so let's start by uh, talk to us about your early years and what your childhood was like. Yeah. So, um, I guess early years I spent mostly overseas. Uh, my dad was in the foreign service, so we traveled a lot as kids. And um, yeah, I grew up in Germany, South Africa, Nigeria, and then was back in the U.S. for better, once I got to high school and then to college. So wait, you said your, your dad was in the service? He was foreign service. So he worked for the State Department. He uh-huh. was a physician that then was posted to embassies overseas and treated the diplomats that worked um, at the embassy. So do you have vivid memories of those places? I do. I do. At least Germany and South Africa. Nigeria was really little. I don't remember that, but Germany was uh, kind of formative years from when I was four to seven. And then mm-hmm. South Africa was there in like my early, not quite teens, like my tweens, so the 10 to 12, um, so forth in fifth grade. Do you yeah. speak uh, German or Afrikaans? I unfortunately, I can count to 10. That's about okay. all I picked up. Yeah. Okay. That's what I got. Um, my More than my me. mom. Um, yeah. That's fair. My parents put me in, um, a, it was a preschool, it was a German preschool. So their mistake was putting me in with another American girl. So the two of us just like spoke clung English. to each other and spoke English to each other and never <laughs> learned a word of German. Yeah. Okay. What was your favorite between those two places? So I'm a huge animal lover, like absolute huge animal lover. So South Africa just like spoke to me. Um, we would do safaris. I would I think I did like three safaris for like every birthday. I would go on safari, um, track animals, 
you know, camp. It was just, yeah, definitely South Africa. Yeah. And the traveling there was really cool. So we got to go to like Zimbabwe and Lesotho and um, Mozambique and Mauritius. And so it was just like, really, as a kid, you just don't even appreciate, you know, the magnitude of that kind of travel. Um, until you know, now as an adult looking back, I just am very grateful for those experiences. Well, okay. We, we have so many things we want to talk about with you, but I'm so intrigued about this South Africa because, um, so if you were there in your formative years, um, you were there kind of a little bit post apartheid, right? Uh, right. As apartheid was happening. Yeah. Right. Right. When Nelson Mandela was inaugurated in 94. Wow. 94 to 96. Do you have any memories of like what living in South Africa during that time was like, or like you guys kind of like did your own thing? I mean, you're separated from it, but then also kind of enmeshed in it. So it was a little of both, you know, we, we saw a lot of it. I actually lived in Pretoria and went to school in Johannesburg. So we traveled between the two cities, which is like a 45 minute hour commute each way. So you saw a lot in that in that distance um and so yeah i definitely i mean i had a lot of experiences just being in in that environment Mm -hmm. but then also you know i was an american you know white girl in south africa and so it was just you know different than like living there and you know being um like a local or native to south africa Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of friends that were you know afrikaans and so you know i definitely kind of experienced a little bit through through their eyes i never knew about yeah. it until i read trevor noah's book i have his book somewhere up there um so <laughs> this is awesome okay okay yeah. we can get back yeah. to we can get back to you <laughs> <laughs> that, that was part of me it, I mean, it definitely you know it definitely i think um just i think one of the reasons that i i just love exploring now i travel a lot i want to like see the world I think just, you know, those formative years and experiencing that just really kind of pushed me towards that interest. So so talk to us about what got you into ultra running. Yeah, um, ultra running actually was not something that I ever thought I would pursue. Um, so I actually, my background was more triathlons. Um, before that, it was like, it was like track and field. Um, and I slowly progressed in triathlons. And then when I started medical school, I just didn't have the time to train, to dedicate to triathlons. It was just too much um, outside of the, the you know, medical school and residency world. And so I started, I decided that at that point, I might as well dedicate myself to one sport. And at that point I had run, you know, all the short distance, shorter distance stuff. So, you know, half marathons, marathons. And so I felt like transitioning from Ironman to ultras was kind of a nice, um, easy way to do it. So I went from, yeah, Ironman training to just basically spending all that time running. <laughs> and um, yeah, I loved it. It's, a, it's also a great community. It's mm-hmm. one of the most supportive communities that I have found. Um, trail runners, ultra runners are just like salt of the earth people. And so I just felt really connected and um, invited into that community. That's, I, I had a um, college friend um, who would run ultras. And I remember one time he ran a hundred miler uh, while we were in college and he was oh, like, wow. Hey guys, I'm going to start at this time. And then we were like, we were, we were like, Oh, we're going to follow him. So we were like following him on our app or whatever at the time. And it was like, we watched a little bit. Then we would go like do stuff 
And then we were like, <laughs> he's still running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is which is crazy. And the fact that you said it was an easy transition, I was like, it's not easy to go from <laughs> Iron Man's to Ultras. This is like a different a different like mentality. Like you went from like hard so it was like a it was definitely a lateral move. Yeah, okay. Lateral. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lateral though, not vertical, you know. That's fair. That's, it That's went fair. from like 14 hours to 24 hours. <laughs> Incrementally, it's not a lot different. My first ultra was 100, 100 miler. So What's from there, that? everything else seemed easy because they were all shorter. So you've done, what's the longest ultra you've done? 100 miles. And then what qualifies as an ultra? Anything over a marathon? Yeah. Yeah. So usually they start at 50K. <laughs> it's kind of your traditional ultra definition. Yeah. And then from there up to, yeah, 100K and then usually 100 miles. Yeah. So. How many hundred mile ultras have you done? I've done uh, three full hundred milers. Okay, talk I, us through your recovery after that. That's what I'm uh, really curious about. Yeah, like are you yeah. are you like, hey, the next week I'm off work, nobody talk to me, or like what happens? Yeah, I wish I could do that. So I was in residency at the time, which oh meant gosh. that I was, you know, and I, so I was doing anesthesia residency. So there's like no days off. So you get the like the one day off, which is the day I raced, and then after that you're just right back in it. So I just went to work the next day and was really sore. Um, you know, being an amputee, it did make it a little little harder. Um, that was probably my biggest struggle. Um, so as an amputee, I just didn't my I had issues with my leg. So there was one time where I was on crutches for a couple of days after, and mm. that made it really hard to do residency duties but you make it work work. so so what has it been like um living with a disability you know i don't you know i forget like a lot of times i forget i have a disability um it's all i've known it's how i grew up i was born with what's called fibula hemimelia it's basically where the fibula doesn't form so I didn't have uh, a full right foot and leg. And so it, my leg was amputated when I was six months old. So I was, you know, so young that I have no memory of any time before. And even then my leg was deformed. Um, so I got my first prosthesis at nine months old. I was, you know, walking and, and climbing at, you know, 12, the usual kind of like standard, you know, 12 months old. Um, and it's just all I've known. So. There are times when I get frustrated, for sure. There are things that I want to do, and they're they're just harder. Um, there are times when I really struggle with the the need to rely on a prosthesis. Um, so, like one of the things I was telling um, a friend in my running group recently that my the legs are like a pair of shoes. You know, they just they have a life, they have a lifespan, and so they get worn out. And so needing to, you know, go back in and get a new leg and the cost of getting a new leg these days, it's just, you know, it, it's something you have to factor in. Um, so I got a quote recently for a new running leg. It was $20,000, um, you know, and, and I just, I love to run. So for me, that's something that I would really struggle with if I couldn't do. And so it just, it makes you mindful of, of I guess, those limitations um, and being grateful for what you can do for sure. That's no. Is that like, is that common? I was gonna say like with when it comes to 
um, prosthetics? Is it like common for them to be that expensive? Um, and then do you have d- different ones for different functions? Yeah. So yes, unfortunately it is that it is common that they're that expensive. That's a pretty standard, um, probably actually a pretty low um, expense for or cost for a leg. Um, I have, so before I had like the most I've had is like eight um, each for something different. So I have a like weightlifting leg. I have an everyday leg. I have a leg that lets me kind of jog and just be active. I have a running leg, a biking leg um, and a cosmetic leg. So like I call it my fancy leg. You know, if I don't, has a skin on it. It looks real. Um, I actually fooled someone at the airport. They didn't believe I had a prosthesis because it looks so real. Um, so I have, yeah, so I have a lot of legs. Uh, most recently, because I travel a lot, I wanted to consolidate them. So we now have a system where I have one socket and then I can change the feet out, which is pretty cool. So it's, it's a little less, it takes up less space mm-hmm. and it's, it's just easier to travel with. It's easier to, you know, do be functional yeah yeah so so talk talk to us about what it what it is to look like to um have a relationship to your disability as you have grown because i know for me i have cerebral palsy and i was born with cerebral palsy but i haven't always been proud of my cp or like kind of just own that I have that. So I'm wondering what was your journey? Yeah, I I totally understand that. I totally get that. And um, I would say that my journey is similar in in some respects. Um, When I was really little, I, it didn't phase me. I, you know, I, I kind of embraced it. I just um, like ran around in spite of it. Um, It didn't really slow me down. And then I would say um, in my teens, I had a big surgery um, and during that time I couldn't wear my prosthesis. I felt very vulnerable. Um, I had an external fixator on, which um, is basically a bunch of screws that was coming coming out of my leg and it really, I think, affected me um, and how I presented myself to the world. And so at that time I really struggled with, you know, feeling like I had a disability, being disabled, being limited. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't walk, I couldn't run. I stuck on in a wheelchair and and it was really hard um and it took me a while to respond to that to to grow out of that in a way um i found sports um that's when actually i found running and i think that is really what shifted my relationship to my disability i think especially because i got to know other people with disabilities so i started running for the usa disabled track team which didn't expose me to just amputees, but also to people in wheelchairs, to blind, to cerebral palsy, to people with all kinds of disabilities. And so it just really, that was the point where I really, I think, shifted my mindset and said, you know, this is who I am and this is what I've been given. And, you know, it's a gift if I let it be. And I kind of was able to, you know, move forward with that mindset. I love that because it's, it's, it's a story of, of perseverance. Um... And it's a story of perseverance from such a young age. And I can only imagine that when that surgery happened, when you, you said you were a teenager and we all know that teenagers are, so yeah. I can only imagine like your thought process and stuff throughout that. But you mentioned earlier about tackling Iron Man. So I wanted to kind of touch on that. Um, what was your 
Like, what was the moment when you're like, I want to start doing Ironmans and not just like Ironmans and, and things like that. But like, I want to be like one of the first and I want to almost be like the face of um, like Iron Man. Like, what was, what was your, what was your thought process with it? Um, that's a good question because I don't think there was quite that thought process in making that decision. So it kind of evolved more than anything. Um, I was doing triathlons. I was doing uh, ITU World Triathlon Championships at the time. Um, so I was racing for the USA team. And I loved it. Absolutely. Um, but I felt like there was constraints uh, because of the USA team. And so I just wanted a little more freedom. And Iron Man kind of seemed like the next challenge. I was, I mean, within disabled sports, it's a very small world. Um, there's just, there's just not that many. Like, there are more, way more now. But especially back, this was like, internet was just becoming a thing, you know, everything was very local, you had to know someone to get into the group. So it just didn't have the same, like, um, or, like, I think, presence that it does now. And so for me, I kind of didn't like I'd been there done that. And I just didn't know, you know, I was winning, coming in first or second, pretty much every race. And so it just didn't seem like a challenge anymore. um, Because it was something I had done. And so Ironman just seemed like, the next challenge that was a little bit of that like you know the type of person that just wants to like embrace a challenge and succeed especially then um i would say that that i've shifted a little bit since then but definitely in my like teen 20s early 30s like that was my i just i wanted and i think i had to prove to myself i had to prove to myself that i could do it there was a, a part of me that that i think needed to know that i was capable of it um mm-hmm. and it helped to kind of offset the fact that I was quote unquote disabled because you know what? I think I, if I knew I could do it, then I wasn't disabled anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, and you like kept doing it like, yeah. and it was, yeah. it's so cool to think, you know, I, I played rugby and I was on the U S team training uh, here in San Diego. And I, what I loved about the training center here in San Diego, the Olympic training center is that we had a bunch of uh, para, para athletes, like para Olympians, like walking around. And it was so cool because I feel like sports is one of those areas where it, it just felt like a nice harmony of like, it didn't matter. Like if you were an amputee, if you were blind, if you were abled body, it was just like, we were all there training. We all were going to the same regiment. We all were eating the same food. And it was just one cool experience that I'll, I'll cherish forever because I just feel like not a lot of people get to experience that. Um, I did want to, I did want to touch on that though. So you said you were on the U S U S team. Um, now were you part of like, I guess, cause triathlon is not, not, not in the Olympics. So were you like, were you part of like a different adaptive sports, I guess? Yeah. So when I did track and field, I was part of the USA was USA Disabled Sports Team was what it was what it was under, but it was you know the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. So we would do the same like like nationals and international track meets as yep. able body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I shifted to triathlon, it was before. So now there actually is um, paratriathlon. So oh, there's awesome. triathlon in the Paralympics. There's still not I think triathlon in the Olympics, but there's still there is a triathlon in the Paralympics now. So that happened. Of, I want to say like five or six years ago. 
Um, so kind of right as I transitioned away from triathlon. So that, like, if I had been doing it at the time, oh, my God, I 100% would have, like, stayed yeah. with it. But I just, I didn't, like, you know, I transitioned away from it. Um, I trained with the cycling team as well for a while. So that was, um, like, Paralympics. Um, so, I, yeah, I trained at the the um, Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista and then the one in Colorado Springs, um, like, every year. Wow. With with the with the organizing bodies that I was under. Wait, when yeah. were you here in Chula Vista? Because we may have been there at the same time. It was a long time ago. A long time. Nineteen ninety. The last time I was there was in actually, I want to say two thousand two. Okay. It was in my last year there. Yeah, I was. When were you there? <laughs> I was <Okay>. there. <laughs> okay, okay. I figured it was a little later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you were there. You were there very young then. Yeah, I was. I was. I was a. I was a teenager. The last time I was there, I was like still in high school, yeah. winning winning races and stuff like that out of high school. Yeah. In high school, yeah. yeah. My summers were like international track meets. Like everyone else was like going to the beach, and I was like, you know, in Barcelona or like London, like running track. It just yeah. Do you regret? Um because you touched on it. I was wondering if you regret like having your summers be so competitive and stuff and not actually being able to go to the beach with your friends or you're like, no, I loved exactly how it went. Yeah. Not for a minute. I don't, I don't regret it. I loved it. It was, I mean, it just, it was just so much more interesting, so much more fun. I don't know. Yeah. Less drama probably. Less drama or maybe more. I don't know. I mean, That's it's true. <laughs> you know, there's those teams. There's yeah. internal dynamics. Um, no, I think I just, you know, I've been someone that's always kind of been driven and like just goal oriented. And so for me, it was just kind of a, a means to an end. And um, but I but I loved it. I was very passionate about it. So I wouldn't have changed it for anything. Um, you know, I, I still had my childhood. I still had my friends, my family and all of that. But I just this was something that I think really added to it. And, most of my friends understood it. A lot of them were athletes too, so they were very supportive of it. So well, you were the. And, I'll go ahead, Tony. And, and I wonder because, like, did part of you feel like you had to be so driven and so focused, not only to prove to yourself, but to maybe prove to others? Um, around you that you couldn't only do this, but you could be the best at it. I don't think I thought about it that way, but I think that when you say it that way, it definitely resonates with me. So yes, I, I do think that was part of it. Um, mm. Just, yeah, not only to myself, but yes, I think to be the best, I, that was a, a common theme. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were the, you were the second amputee to complete the Ironman in Kona, the Kona Triathlon, which is an incredible achievement. Um, can you take us through like the emotional roller coaster um, leading up to the race, maybe during the race, and even like how, like even going through the finish line? Yeah, so I would say Kona is one of the. It is the most energetically like vibrant races I've ever been to. So the the energy just at the starting line, the finish line is just incredible. So that is what kind of carries you through. The race starts. It's I mean it is surprisingly cold. You know you think you're in Hawaii, but it's also October. Surprisingly cold. You hop in that water. It's um you know it's two point four mile swim. So 
I under I, I heard that it was a beautiful view. I actually never opened my eyes underwater. That sounds ridiculous, but I I I just I'm not like a huge fan of open water swimming. Um so I kept Me my neither. eyes closed every time I put them under, you know, and I would just keep swimming. And my point was to get to like the the finish, uh the swim finish. Um the bike is one of the most challenging like courses athletic moments I've ever had. It's, you know, black pavement for forever. And you just keep riding in the sound this highway that you can see this beautiful ocean, which is great. But and all you want to do is get in the ocean at this point because it's like feeling like a hundred degrees now. The blacktop is just radiating heat and then the wind picks up. And that they say like ride as fast as you can when you get on there because you want to beat the wind because once that wind picks up you just have a headwind and you feel like you're just you know driving with everything you have and you're not moving and so i just got out there and just powered you know just like churned my legs and got through as much of it as i could as quickly as i could um and then the run i would say like i'm a runner so for me the run is i got to the marathon and was like okay i knew i could finish um it is it is a very cool most of the run so there's like half the run is in is on highway which is a very lonely time um and then half the run is through the actual like kona village and that part is just there's you know probably thousands of fans out just cheering you on the energy is just so uplifting so you go out you feel like i just want to quit i don't want to do this anymore you know, out on the the kind of blacktop highway part. And then you come back into town and you're just like, this is incredible. Why would I ever stop? You know, and you just kind of get this, yeah, like emotional roller coaster going through this. And then when you come into that finish line, it's just, it doesn't matter what time you finish it. There are hundreds of people that are at that finish line cheering you on and just like carrying you the last mile of the race. So it's a very powerful experience um you know you do have a lot of like you said i mean a lot it is an emotional roller coaster physical roller coaster you feel like there are points where you just couldn't imagine doing another you know like step and then there are other points where you're just kind of high on life and just feel like the wind is beneath your wings you know so it, it i i'm grateful i did it i don't know that you know if you said hey kelly you're you just, you know, you just got into Kona, you're going next year. I don't know that I would, you know, do it again right now, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so glad I did it. Well, congrats on that. Thank it sounds you. like, it sound, it does sound like an emotional roller coaster. Like, and I, w- I was thinking, you said it was a lonely ride or lonely run. Was that because you were in front or was that just because there's <laughs> nobody cheering or both? There's just nobody cheering. There's okay. just no one, there's no one out there. It's, it's just a very lonely time because you're, you're kind of on your own. Um, and then, you know, you're spaced out at that point. So, the you know, I couldn't tell you how many competitors were in the race when I did it. But, you know, there are thousands of people, right? This was back when it was combined. It was men and women in the same race, um, you know, since they've split it up. But back then it was, you know, so it's thousands of people running this race. But you just kind of split up over what the t- cutoff time, 17 hours. So you imagine over 17 hours. You know, depending on when you're out there, there aren't that many people left. And so you yeah, just kind of are on your own at points. Yeah. 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 It was not my fastest race, but it was one of my proudest. And what year was that? Oh, gosh. That was 2007. 
So then a few years later, I believe, you climbed Mount Whitney, correct? Yeah, I did Mount Whitney last year. Last year? Oh, wow. So like later. Yeah, so that was a recent thing. Yeah. So then what was, what motivated you, which also is another incredible accomplishment, what made it motivated you to take on that challenge? And did you learn anything from that experience? I learned a lot. I definitely learned a lot. Um, I can share that. But um, I think... So my early career and into my early 30s was all about racing. It was all about getting to a finish line. Um, And there, I think that was very powerful. And and I'm really glad I I had that experience. And I still love to race. But um, over the last, especially during COVID and then since, um, I've kind of shifted what my, I think, my end goal is. So while I love the race, I think... Um, the experience and the journey and the and the viewpoint is almost more important. So I started doing a lot of um, local runs and climbs. Um, so I've done all of the major climbs in Southern California. Um, and there's something about getting to like the peak of a mountain that like under your own power mm. that is, I think, uplifting in its own way and just empowering. And so I I think that's what drew me to Whitney. Um, you know, it's the highest peak in the continental U.S. Um, it's in my backyard, so there were you know a lot of factors that kind of made it one of made it just like a really cool opportunity. Um, and then I had a goal. I was you know I wasn't going into it trying to like you know get a, a FKT or anything, but I just wanted I wanted to like do as well as I could. And so um, when I finished, I had no idea. It, like popped up on my Strava, and I was um, sixth of like all the people that have logged in on Strava for women, I was like number six on Strava. And that was like, that was pretty, pretty freaking awesome. So yeah, it's those little things. And then, I don't know, what did I learn? Um, there, there's a big difference. I think there's a huge importance uh, of physical capability, but I think that the mental component is just as powerful and just as important. And so I learned that because I knew I was like physically prepared for it. But when you hit some of the altitude, um, because we did a 24 hour, like within 24 hours, we took took us about six and a half hours to do the whole thing. Um, when you're looking at that time span, um, you when you're hitting that altitude so quickly, like there were some mm-hmm. points where I, you know, I had to like mind over matter, kind of like work myself up um, to keep going, mm-hmm. and that was. I've had that in other races, but not to the extent that I experienced it in Whitney. Well, because you don't have any air. <laughs> that <going> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So was it? Were you were you experiencing like physical, like I can't breathe, or like I know some people get altitude sickness. Like, what was that experience like dealing with the altitude? Yeah, I mean the altitude hit me really hard. We hit about ten thousand feet, uh, eleven thousand feet, and so you, it's at fourteen five. So it's still a, like quite a bit of distance to climb. Um, but it was just, you know, really high heart rate, um, really hard to catch my breath. Um, and then you just start to feel kind of woozy. Like I just felt like it just kind of thing where like, you're almost like wobbling, <laughs> um, which is not good on like a very narrow trail that like, you know, has some like steep drop offs. So, <laughs> you know, it was, there were some moments where yeah, you're on a mountain wobbling. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a good place to be. So, um, Luckily, I had hiking poles, so I, you know, had like lots of points of contact with the ground. So that was good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, 
it just it came on really suddenly for me and, I, and i've done like we have a number of peaks down here that are on like eleven thousand feet so i've done a lot of those um but i never had to keep going <laughs> past that point and so to climb another three thousand feet feeling that way was like again i knew i was physically capable it was just tell you know my birth like like convincing my body that i could do it so i had to like i just had to like believe i guess in myself um and yeah and we we had a great time did you play any tricks on your i know like as an athlete i feel like we play tricks on our brain it's all mental right like yeah, sometimes we right. physically can can do the thing but mentally there's a lot of blockage we talk about that little voice in our heads like when you're going through like a tough training day did you play any tricks on your on your mind at that time that you could think of that like this is how i got through that i mean nothing specific comes to mind mostly because i think i wasn't thinking that clearly um <laughs> like <true. laughs> i mean there definitely was some points where i i mean i literally over and over again i would just keep repeating like like kelly you can do this kelly you can do this kelly you got this kelly you know i mean it was like incessant in my brain and that was just like the same thought i would just repeat it over and over again with every step um because it was just that reminder of like knowing that i that i and i knew i could do it but it was just that like kelly you can do it kelly you got you know and, and i would literally i mean for like miles mm. i would just like repeat that same phrase over and over again because i think there's a part of your brain that wants to think i can't do this you know like i quit i give up and so you're almost like shutting out that negativity by, I think, focusing on the positivity and like reinforcing, I can do this, I can do this, I can, you know, and so that for me was really, really important. Um, I would say the other thing, and I kind of just thought about this, but it's important is that with Whitney, like, it's not like a race where you're like, oh, I quit, I'm done, I'm going to DNF. And like, you get a ride back to the start line, right? Like, you're out there, you once you've hit a certain point, like, you know, turning around is almost just as hard. So yeah, might as well, you finish. know, you got, might as well just keep going. So there, there was that, and that was around the point where I really felt pretty, pretty bad. Um, it was kind of like, well, I still have, cause it's like 11 miles out, um, to the peak and back. So 22 miles. So you probably hit that around mile seven. So at that point, I still had seven miles to get back, you know, if I wanted to turn around. So I might as well just finish. Yeah, might as well finish. Yeah. The four miles, you know. That's the yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I get it. So uh, after hearing everything that you've accomplished, I'm just sitting with this, uh, with the word resilience. Um, you know what it's like to be resilient. And I'm, I'm wondering how that plays in uh, with your time on Survivor. Can you talk to us about what that experience was like and how that's changed your outlook on life? You know, it's interesting. Um, Survivor, oddly enough, was one of the easier things I've done in a way. Yeah, I, I bet so. <laughs> <laughs> um you know interestingly that experience was not when i went into it the part i was not anticipating was more of the emotional challenge i was really focused on preparing for like the physical component you know the not eating the not sleeping the right the physical challenges I, that's the part i was really worried about 
I didn't appreciate how emotionally challenging and draining it would be. Mm. Um, because I think one of the things that's been so important in my life and being able to do a lot of the challenges I've done is having a support network and always feeling like, you know, I have friends and family that really support me and they believe in me. And so in Survivor, it's like, you can't trust anybody. Like nobody's got your back when you're out there. And so you suddenly, a little bit like being out on like the last, you know, miles of Kona Ironman, like you are just alone. And that was a pretty unique feeling for me. Like just really that isolation and that like feeling like you had no one to count on and, you know, no one to run things by and no one to like really support you and lift you up. And and it, it was even more obvious after I came off the show and watched the episodes when you hear what people were saying about you, you know, when they were on camera, like individually, it was, um, it was, it was an experience. Yeah. What what was like, how did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? Um, they, yeah. So they, they do have some recruiters and, and they, so I was um, the first disabled ball girl at the U S open in 2007. So right after I did, yeah, I think it was after I did whole uh, Kona. Um, so it was 2008. Um, so that made the paper. I was in like the Washington Post and the New York Times. And so that article just spread um, and it had some of my accomplishments and just, yes, history. And so um, they kind of reached out to me after that saying that they were interested in human interest story um, and kind of taking a little bit of you know, a twist on um, within the show. And so I was the second amputee on the show. Um, there was someone that was on before me. Yeah. Okay. I have, can you walk us through, I used to watch Survivor like diligently back in the day. I haven't watched in a couple of years. Can you walk us through like what a day looked like and like what it was like when they would pull you aside to do like a little interview and like, is it happening real time? Like what is true? What is fake is essentially what I want to know. <laughs> Everything they catch on camera is true. It actually happened. Okay. Um, just like, just, you know, um, I will say that. Are you supposed to say that? There's. Shh, <laughs> don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. It all happened. Um, you know, there is definitely some editing. So, you know, the way that things unfold may, may not be um, 100% through to the way they unfolded in life. Um, the, I, you know, I, I would say the impact of not eating and not sleeping is a very real. It, it messes with your head. Um, you become very suggestible. And so I remember I would go do the, like off the, the individual interviews, they would pull you aside and, you know, and uh, mic you up and you'd sit in this really nice setting and they'd start asking you questions. But the, the interesting thing with the questions is that they were always leading questions, you know, didn't this person make you feel this way? You'd be like, oh my God, yes, that person made me feel. And then you just repeat what they said. And you were like, just say, mm. like you'd walk, like I, at least I did. Cause I was in med school at the time. So for me, it was like, I was trying very hard to present myself in a really professional way, but like not in a professional environment because it's survivor. Right. Mm. So I, I really struggled with knowing that you know, people that would potentially like employ me in the future. And like, I was applying to oh. residency, right? Like they could be watching this yeah. and I don't want them to like, see it and be like, Oh God, like this person is horrible, you know? So I was very conscious of that throughout, which made it um, probably a little more 
challenging in a way because I, you know, I wanted to come across as like somewhat professional and um, like a team player, but like a survivor. So nobody's a team player. Like your team is you, <laughs> individual. <laughs> so um, the rest, I don't know. The not eating thing is real. I mean, I think I ate like 300 calories a day. I lost 16 pounds in Jeez. three weeks. Um, I went from 118 pounds to 102 pounds. Whoa. Yeah. So I was like skin and bones when I came off the show. I had lost all my conditioning. I was training for Ironman at the time. I lost all my conditioning um, when I when I came off because I like had no muscle. Um, yeah. You you thought about food a lot. I like would have dreams about food. Um, yeah. Sleeping wow. on bamboo is not comfortable. That was tough. Yeah. And then I, I mean, but really for me, it was the emotional part. I mean, that part's really real. And I think the part that they kind of underplay, like, what are those people saying about me? You know, you kind of feel like you're in middle school almost. Yeah. And like, that's what sells, <laughs> honestly. It is, yeah. It is, that's so, what, I mean, I watched it. I was like, oh, yeah. And when you don't feed people and don't, you know, don't let them sleep, it definitely, like, brings out the worst in people. That's so, so it's so wild. I guess I, I guess I'm really curious. You kind of touched on it. What was... So yes, you went through a physical journey, right? But then you also talk about the emotional. Did you did you struggle when you came back to like real life emotionally or like mentally, like just interacting with friends, family, relationships? Like what was that experience like? Interestingly, I think the part that I noticed the most, we were in Nicaragua for seven weeks, well, like four weeks. And then we, then I was in Costa Rica for a few weeks because you get sequestered for the full seven weeks. So the time I was in Nicaragua, I remember coming off. I mean, just again, not really eating, not really having good like, like housing situation. I mean, we were basically sleeping on the beach um, with very, you know, I, you have one outfit basically, like you're wearing the same clothes every day. Um, and thinking about like how, how hard it was, but also that it was impermanent for us. It was, it was very temporary, right? Like as soon as you're voted out, then you're going to go back to like luxury essentially. And so when we, after I was voted out and then went back to the to Ponderosa and then from there, we did some like, tra like just a little like day trips and stuff in Nicaragua. And I saw the conditions that a lot of these people live in day to day. I mean, like little tin huts, you know, like, like dirt floors. I mean, very little food. And it made me really realize and appreciate like that I have so much and that these people didn't. And so that was a huge, I mean, and I, I wanted it to last longer. I think, unfortunately, you just get so programmed and conditioned to what you're used to that, you know, once you came back to like you know, the, the luxury, it was hard to like imagine your life any differently. But I, I do remember that was like very um, a noticeable thing when I came out and had those experiences. And then we went to Costa Rica and we were like traveling with five, you know, it was like six of us. I think at that point, so Jimmy Johnson was on my season. So he got voted out, but he couldn't travel because it's Jimmy Johnson and everyone would yeah. recognize him. Mm -hmm. So he got like sequestered in Managua by himself. And then um, another guy who got voted out uh, pre-jury also, I don't know, didn't come with us and so i think there were six of us and so it was like the weirdest mix of people that didn't like we had to spend three weeks with oh, wow. like day and night and you're like i have zero in common with you like i don't like you i've just spent you know 
three weeks on the season with you, like, you know, and we're, you have that like emotional, whatever, like that, that conflict on the show. And now you're like, I have to now spend like the next four weeks with you. I don't really want to. And so that was really, and you have like no phone, no access to like no oh, computer, man. no nothing. Like and you're just stuck. With I don't these have people. a, you're stuck with these people. Oh. Yeah. I couldn't, I mean, when I got, Oh my God, when I landed in Miami, I was like, Oh, this is incredible. <laughs> just to like be able to like talk to my mom, you know, like, and like people that I, I know, but yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting, definitely an interesting experience. I, I, I feel like you've, you've accomplished so many things. Um, we didn't even touch on your like medical profession. Um, but I did want to talk about, um, a, it seems like it was a pretty big year for you. 2010. Um, mm-hmm. that's when you were on survivor and, mm-hmm. uh, was that also Kona? Was Kona the same year? No, Kona was a few years before. Um, but then at the beginning of 2010, um, that's when the earthquake happened in the tragic passing of your, of your father in Haiti. I can only imagine how difficult that would, um, how would you say his memory has influenced your life choices and, and achievements? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about him all the time. Um, he was a very encouraging person, um, also a very ambitious person. So he really, I think, motivated me and pushed me to do so much of what I have been able to accomplish. And oddly enough, he wasn't there for a lot of it. I mean, he, he was there for a ton of it, but then, um, you know, since about 2010, he hasn't been there, but, um, a lot of what I do like survivor. I remember when I was asked to be on the show and I went through the interview process and then got accepted on, um, it was months. I mean, after we got, that we found out about my dad. So my dad was in Haiti in 2010, January 2010, when the Haiti earthquake happened. We found out about his passing in February. It took that long to get news back because there was just such limited communication with Haiti and there was so much devastation that it took a month for them to find him. Wow. So I had mm. heard about Survivor in the meantime. And so a lot of like my family didn't I mean they didn't want me going to Nicaragua which is like this you know not far from Haiti and you know they had like the fear of me going to that country um and I think they felt like they were very they just weren't supportive they I think they you know I think there was a lot of fear and I I knew my dad would be would like encourage me 100% I knew that would be so important to him he would um he would like he would live vicariously through me and he just like he would have been so supportive of it. He would be like, you should go and do it. And so that really kind of motivated me to make a decision that a lot of the people in my life at the time didn't support. Um, and interestingly enough, now, you know, looking back are like very excited that I did it and, you know, we're able to kind of share in some of the experience and we're able to like, you know, show their friends like, oh, look at, you know, like this my mom was one of those people, you know, and then she was like telling you know, all of her friends like, oh, my daughter was, you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the time when I was making the decision to be on Survivor, she was not supportive. And I think you know, a lot of it was fear-based. Um, but I just knew my dad would 100% like encourage it. And so I just, that has motivated me in a lot of the decisions I've made, knowing like just that he would be there for me and he would support me and he would want me to, to chase those dreams. So, so Kelly, from Survivor to setting records, 
your story and your journey is just incredible and very inspiring. What would be one piece of advice you would leave our listeners with? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just to be true to yourself, you know, find what um, makes you feel powerful and empowers you and really be true to it and, and follow it. Follow that dream, follow that that desire, um, because I think that that's what makes you you. Right? That's that's what makes you authentic, unique and who you are. And you need to find that piece and, and go after it. So whether it's you know, whatever it is to you. So what does it mean for you to be authentically you? For me, it's really about, I think, being in the moment and chasing my dream. So whatever that dream is, um, I really, you know, put 100% into it and I go after it, um, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, chasing a career in medicine or going after, you know, a peak like Whitney. I just dedicate myself to it and I really... I'm proud of, of what I'm able to do and know, and know that I can do it. I think um, for me, that's a really important piece. Just a full send, a full send life. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, this has been an amazing, amazing uh, so interview good. thus far. But we have one more segment we wanted to share with you, which is called Rapid Fire. <laughs> now, this is where we ask you three questions. That's and this will be the first thing that comes to mind. Don't pass go. Don't um, ask your dog. I heard your dog earlier. We love dogs on the way. Yeah, I know. She got, <laughs> she got noisy as soon as we started. I know. Um, okay, first question is, if you could switch lives with any fictional character for a week, would it be in... Frodo Baggins. Who? Uh, from uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, again, it's the challenge. Mm. It's having a challenge to go, to mm. go uh, achieve. What's wrong with the world? Discontent. I think that if everyone was at more had more peace, we would we would just be in a better place. I think people mm. are too discontent. The last question is: What's your go-to method for relieving stress in a high pressure pressure situation? If I can, a run. Just getting out in nature uh, on a run. Trail run is like for me. That's what does it. Okay, this is like a this is a third this is a fourth question, but it's not really rapid fire. Do you run with headphones or not headphones? Oh, interesting question. Um, usually no headphones. I knew it. I knew yeah. it. I knew yeah, it. I'm a no headphone runner for the most part. Interesting. What do you yeah, do? People think you it's just... people think it's so weird. I've been having this conversation in my run group. They're like, Wait, you don't listen to music? I'm like, I no, I don't. I used to. I don't. So when I did ultras, I trained um I listened to audiobooks. Okay. When I did ultras, I, I would just kind of run like real slow and, and listen to audiobooks. Um, but now, because I'm, it's just usually I'm a, uh, like either trail running or in like a busy area. I find that I don't know. I just for me, it's just so like zen and peaceful. I don't really need the distraction. Yeah. Well, um, where can people find you? And what do you have in terms of like? Let me <laughs> let me rephrase that question because people think it's a word. Um, where can people see what you have going next? Yeah, so I'm Instagram Kelly Bruno MD um, is is where I post everything. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being a part of Authentically Us. This was truly a a story of perseverance, and thank you for sharing with us. And until next time, Kelly, be authentic in everything that you do. I mean, I mean, Tony. I mean, can we talk about it? Fire. Like we've had good episodes. 
by far the best one. Like she's a legend. She's so inspirational. Like and, and that's what I'm sitting with. It's like she she has always had a prosthetic leg and she has not let this le- this prosthetic leg define her in the slightest. But she defies all odds. And and like you said, she's a legend. The amount of things that she's won, like just speaking to a fellow athlete, it was just really cool to hear her process, her thought process, how she was proving to herself that she could do it. And there's nothing like that self-motivation. You know, we, you, you hear Kobe, you hear LeBron, you hear Michael. They talk about Muhammad Ali. They talk about getting motivation just from anything. Like, oh, they texted me this. He said this in a in a in an interview. That's my motivation for this week. But hers seemed like it was a lot of self motivation, which is hard, which is really hard as an athlete to do. I commend her, Kelly. Thank you for being a, a inspiration to us to us all. And now I, I'm just going to work out. I feel like I just need to work out a lot more. <laughs> right, right. I feel like I I got no excuse to be healthy now. Like, let's. Let's go. Let's do it. Like, let's stop being. I want to stop having excuses to be the best version of who I am. Woo! I love that. And I love that we have that on recording so I can play it back to you like a great friend I am. Can't wait to do that. <laughs> Y'all know what time uh, it is. It's time for the friendship moment. Moment. We out here having great moments together, man. And like we said at the beginning of this podcast, we're reading a book which talks about friendships and y'all need to tune in. But Tony, you have a question for me? Yes. So in what ways do you wish that you and I could take our friendship to the next level? I would say we can be more intentional with uh, conversation outside of podcasting. I think, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't need to be weekly. Like, I, I mean, obviously we're reading in this book about how different friendships can look different, differently, can look different ways. Um, but what I learned so far is intentionality. And as long as we can commit and be intentional, I think that's how our friendship can go and grow even deeper. So that's what I would say. I like that. Let's do it. Well, y'all, another great episode. Um, you might need to run this one back. Follow Kelly, go on her Instagram, see see what she's accomplishing. But y'all, until next time, be authentic in everything that you do. Peace. Peace out.